0: Hello and welcome to Natural Sin. I'm your host, Norman Byers, and today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 31. And last time we covered up to verse 24 and got really deep into this. And we're going to do the same thing this time. And let's get started and have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Thank you for blessing us with this opportunity and privilege of being able to discuss Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 31. Please bless us with your Holy Spirit. Give us insight, Father. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Please bless us now as we get into these verses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start actually with verse 24 to keep in context "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God." Well, this is where the understanding of gospel is grasped or lost. And unfortunately, most people lose it here. Um, This is language that can be really properly understood in the background or with the background of the sanctuary in the Old Covenant and the promises and the covenants of God. And really, this is why Paul said in uh, verse one of this chapter that the Jew had an advantage over the Gentile because they have this understanding. And there's a lot in uh, verse 25, so let's get into it and see what we can find out. Well, the first question that came to mind is, what is a propitiation? Uh, That's a word that seems like a large word that uh, is kind of confusing. And if you look it up in a dictionary, it'll tell you that it's uh, something that, uh, some type of an offering that was used to appease God's not the God, but pagan gods, uh, idols, and so in the Bible that would be inaccurate or not usable because it gives the impression that God is waiting for us to do something to placate his anger so that uh, we can have favor with him. Uh, But that's a pagan teaching and it's not applicable to God. Uh, the pagans offered animals to calm down their gods or to get things from them or to be blessed by uh, good weather so that they could have good crops and a whole host of other things. And they were so deceived with that, uh, that thinking that they actually offered their own children as sacrifices. And the children of Israel were warned more than once not to associate with these people and uh, they didn't listen to God, and they ended up sacrificing their own children as well. And uh, you see here the, the need of mankind to have the proper God, because without the true, loving, merciful, righteous God, we end up doing all kinds of things that are damaging to us and just plain crazy and wicked the true sacrifices were designed to let god's people know that uh, they were look forward to a time when the messiah would come and be a sacrifice for the sins of anyone who would accept him as their personal savior and that uh, sacrificial aspect of verse 25 is seen in the fact that paul says through faith in his blood right i'll reread it again whom God had set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. So this is exactly what God had intended for his people in the Old Covenant to do. Uh, that sacrificial system that uh, God had set up for the Israelites was to teach them this important lesson that uh, it would uh, sacri- that uh, forgiveness of sin, pardon, would come through uh, not through the... Animal sacrifices that they were actually giving, but through faith in the Redeemer to come. And um, one thing that they this uh, taught this sacrifice, something that was almost universally forgotten, is that sin is transferred by faith through repentance. That's how sin is forgiven. It's not just sort of, God just doesn't say, okay, I'm going to let you go now and you can just don't worry about it. I I forgive you. Uh, The Bible tells us in Romans 6.23, the first part, that the wages of sin is death. And another part in the Bible tells us that uh, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. So sin requires death. It's going to bring death. And we can be thankful that Jesus Christ came here to die as a sacrifice so that we can use his sacrifice uh, for our sins and that's the whole purpose of this. And We can get into that a little bit more as we go on through the book of Romans. Now I want to l- l- outline some of the steps here uh, so we can uh, establish order and uh, the legality of these sacrifices which in turn gives us a truth, a foundation that we can place our faith in. Alright, so if you have something you want to write down with, or you can pause and go and get something to write down with, here are some steps. Uh this took place in the old covenant. All right. Number one, the person would commit sin, and unless the Holy Spirit would convict them, uh they wouldn't be worried about sin and probably wouldn't care. They're carnal, you know, they're not spiritually minded. Um then the other aspect of that is that the Holy Spirit comes to him and convicts the person and he feels his guilt and uh, the law is brought to his mind and uh, his guilt and condemnation are revived. They come to life and they you know give him the impression that he's got to do something with this guilt. He feels bad about it. Uh, step three, the Holy Spirit brings that person grace. And the sinner accepts the grace of God, and he repents. It's an experience that's given to, to him by grace. So, uh, in his repentance, he now realizes that he has something that he wants to do, and that is to fulfill what God has given to the children of Israel to do when somebody would sin. So, he brings a sacrifice to the sanctuary, uh, let's say that would be a lamb. There were other ones, but in this case, let's just use a lamb. And there he would meet the priest. And the priest obviously knew why he was there with a the lamb. So uh, he would place his hands, this would be step five, he places his hands on the head of the lamb and confesses his guilt and sin to God. And verse six, or I should say uh, point six, is that at that moment, the sin is transferred to the lamb, and it's no longer a part of him. He is freed from that sin, and it's guilt. Point seven, the priest then gives the repentant sinner a ceremonial knife, and the repentant sinner cuts the throat of that lamb. Point eight, the priest catches the blood in a container. And point nine, the priest places some of that blood on the horns of the altar of sacrifice and some of it was poured down at the uh, poured on the base of of the around the altar of sacrifice that's point nine point ten at this point the repentant sinner is free from sin and he's justified looked upon as though he had never sinned that is amazing this is what jesus was to do when he came to this earth and this is what the children of israel were to know and look forward to when the messiah would come but they missed that point but there's another point that makes this whole process um, even better and it's something that would never occur in any of the pagan sacrifices in fact I think that it happened very few times in the um, in the old covenant with God's people because they misunderstood the purpose of the sacrifices Point 11 is this, God supernaturally imparts the Holy Spirit into the soul temple of the repentant sinner. And God gives this to the repentant sinner to live a life free from the controlling power of sin in his flesh and the temptations that come from within and without. That would be mainly Satan. This would prove that he is a child of God and can live a holy life. Now I want to read something to you that gives insight into this. This is taken from the Review and Herald. Let me see, let me get the uh, actual... December 17th, 1872, starting at paragraph 2. And I'm going to read through to paragraph 7 because this is quite good. The blood of beasts could not satisfy the demands of God As an atoning sacrifice for the transgression of his law, the life of a beast was of less value than the life of the offending sinner, therefore could not be a ransom for sin. It could only be acceptable with God as a figure of the offering of his son. Man could not atone for man. His sinful fallen condition would constitute him an imperfect offering an atoning sacrifice of less value than Adam before his fall. God made man perfect and upright, and after his transgression there could be no sacrifice acceptable to God for him unless the offering made should in value be superior to man as he was in his state of perfection and innocency. The divine Son of God was the only sacrifice of sufficient value to fully satisfy the claims of God's perfect law. The angels were sinless, but of less value than the law of God. They were amenable to law. They were messengers to do the will of Christ and before him to bow. They were created beings and probationers. Upon Christ no requirements were laid, He had power to lay down his life and to take it again. No obligation was laid upon him to undertake the work of atonement. It was a voluntary sacrifice that he made. His life was of sufficient value to rescue man from his fallen condition. The Son of God was in the form of God, and he thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He was the only one who, as a man, walked the earth who could say to all men, who of you convinceth me of sin? He had united with the Father in the creation of man, and he had power through his own divine perfection of character to atone for man's sin and to elevate him and bring him back to his first estate. The sacrificial offerings and the priesthood of the Jewish system were instituted to represent the death and mediatorial work of Christ. All those ceremonies had no meaning and no virtue only as they related to Christ who was himself the foundation of and who brought, it, who brought into existence the entire system. The Lord had made known to Adam, Abel, Seth, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and the ancient worthies, especially Moses, that the ceremonial system of sacrifices and the priesthood of themselves were not sufficient to secure the salvation of one soul. The sacrificial system excuse me, the system of sacrificial offerings pointed to Christ. Through these the ancient worthies saw Christ and believed in him. These were ordained of heaven to keep before the people the fearful separation which sin had made between God and man, requiring a mediating ministry. Through Christ, the communication, which was cut off because of Adam's transgression, was opened between God and the ruined sinner. But this infinite sacrifice that Christ voluntarily made for man remains a mystery that angels cannot fully fathom. So we have a lot of uh, beautiful explanation there as to the sacrifice of Christ, what it meant, and it all goes back to what Paul is talking about in Romans 3, verse 25. And it gives us an understanding as to what it means when we have to place our faith in the blood of Jesus. Uh, And again, as we talked about in uh, our last study, We know that repentance is the foundation of faith. Without repentance, uh, no one can believe unto righteousness. It's not possible. We don't have that capacity. Repentance is a gift of God that prepares the heart so that we can believe. So this is all referring back to the uh, sacrificial system, but how it pointed forward to Christ and what he would do. And now that he has done that, Those sacrifices, or I should say the sacrifice of Christ, is meaningful and has power, whereas the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but Christ's sacrifice could. Uh, In the second part of verse 25, it says, "...to declare his or God's righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God." So, Paul is speaking about the legal aspects of the propitiation. God can legally do this because of the way sin has been transferred from the guilty sinner to the innocent Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And he refers to this also in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15, speaking about the Old Covenant sins. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And um, he he, he kind of reaffirms his statement in verse 26. He says, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he, God, might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Notice that the justification has not taken place in the past, but that God is just and the justifier in the present tense of him which believes. That's all present tense, believes in Christ. And how can we believe? Again, through the gift of repentance. And faith then is exercised. The transference of sin is made, and we are cleansed. And this is why he describes this in verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And now to verse 27, where is boasting then? You know, who can say, well, I, because of my goodness, am right with God? God can accept me because I am such a just and good person. That is uh, not going to happen. Paul described in the first three chapters, um, the condition of man and that there is no possible way of keeping the law and becoming justified by keeping the law. It just won't happen no matter what law it is. There's nothing that we can do in of ourselves that will cause God to look favorably upon us and justify us or just to let us go. That's not going to happen. So he says here, where is boasting then? It is excluded. In other words, you cannot boast. By what law? Of works? No, by law of faith. Because because of faith, we don't use works, the works of keeping the law, to be justified. The law is used in another sense, right? Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And that's a repetition of verse 20 which says therefore by the deeds of the law there shall no flesh be justified in his sight for by the law is the knowledge of sin verse 29 is he the god of the jews only is he not also of the gentiles yes of the gentiles also this comparison reveals that the jew who knew the law of god and a gentile who didn't know the law of god are all justified in the same manner through faith And without using the law of God without trying to keep it or trying to be circumcised or keep the law of Moses but rather we exercise faith in the atoning sacrifice of Christ verse 30 seeing then it is one God that shall justify the circumcision by faith that would be those who keep the law the Jews and the uncircumcision through faith uh, that would be the Gentiles so both are through faith by faith and he says here, which shall justify, right? Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. This is speaking about a, not speaking, excuse me, it's not speaking of a present tense, but that's kind of a future tense, right? Something that's going to take place when we do what God asks us to do, when we fulfill the requirements of his law, which are not grievous they are simply to receive his grace and exercise the gift of repentance and then confess jesus as our lord and savior and then he ends with this in verse 31 do we then make void the law through faith god forbid yea we established a law so by being justified by faith, it doesn't mean you just throw the law away. If you did that, then you would have no knowledge of sin. There would be no need for uh, uh, Christ anymore because everybody would be sinless. There would be nothing to um, point out what sin is. Um, This question highlights two facts. One, exercising faith to be declared righteous through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus is not the same thing as voiding or nullifying God's law. God's law is still in effect and point two voiding God's law would be the same as forgiving every human being at the death of Christ. But Jesus came here to honor the law of God by dying for the guilt of the world and offering himself a substitute for the repentant sinner so that we could have the assurance of salvation. There's a principle here that we can learn from and here's what it is Uh, we do not eat or dress to earn acceptance with god it is a part of the gospel to eat and to dress to the glory of god right i don't know if you understand what i'm saying there but i'll put it this way we don't eat healthy foods we don't dress godly in order to earn acceptance with god rather it's the result of receiving justification by faith through repentance and having the Holy Spirit in us, and then God guides us to do those things because we want to glorify Him. right? We don't want to live our lives to try to gain acceptance or salvation with God in any way possible because it's not possible. That's deceiving ourselves. and It's called Phariseeism, and uh, it's just not possible. It will lead you to be one of the most miserable people in the world if you try to live like that. Right? The law only gives us a knowledge of sin and it leads us, or drives us, to Christ for pardon. Well, I want to lead you with one thought, and that is this. Repentance always precedes forgiveness, and to be led to repentance, God has to give us a standard that reveals our selfishness of sin, so that we can repent. And that standard is called the Ten Commandments, which Paul says in verse 31. We just finished reading it. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid we establish the law. Or he says, yay, we establish the law. Well, that's going to be it for this time. I hope that this has been a blessing to you. And if it has been, share it with other people and um, study it yourself to see that these things are true. Let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time that we've had to look at the book of Romans, verses 24 right through to 31. Thank you for the insight that you've given to us and the privilege that we have of knowing these things and being able to have confidence in the fact that he which hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We pray and ask that you would bless us and keep us. In Jesus' name, amen. Take care and God bless you. and.